It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So there are three big, fat, juicy stories that I want to spend most of the podcast on. Hello, America. Hope you had a good weekend. Uh, If you didn't see Media Buzz, all the segments are online from yesterday's show. And the stories are unfolding in Washington, Albany, and London. Just to give you a little billboard at the top here, as far as here in D.C., the Senate over the weekend uh, passing that nearly $2 trillion COVID aid package that President Biden has been pushing so hard. The House is going to vote on it again tomorrow to adopt the Senate version. It will go to the president for a signature. I want to get into the coverage of it and the implications of it. Uh, in Albany, uh, Andrew Cuomo is in a lot bigger trouble than he was before the weekend as more accusations come out, more allegations, more deep dives uh, by media organizations that initially had been rather tepid on this story and losing political support. Want to get into that as well. And then we have the big royal interview. Harry, Meghan, Oprah. I mean, I think this is the most anticipated interview by a member of the royal family probably since Diana in the 1990s. Um, And it was quite a spectacle Two-hour extravaganza on on CBS. It has caught. It has been like an absolute nuclear explosion in terms of the British press. So, which of these three? Oh, come on, you know you want me to hear you hear me talk about Oprah. You know you want to hear about the Royals. I, I, I these other stories may be important, but I'm just going to bow to public opinion on this and give you my thoughts on the great Buckingham Palace melodrama that has just sort of uh, is the talk of the town, shall we say, on both sides of the Atlantic and probably in a lot of other countries as well. So the first thing about it, uh, I watched part of it and then saw clips for the rest because, you know, I have a life and I know other things to do. But the first part of it was, you know, uh, Oprah just kind of letting out this, oh, wow, you're pregnant. It's so great to see you as they're on this magnificent California estate. We learned that Oprah and now um, the Royals couple uh, are neighbors in that part of California. This was not their house. They later went to the Harry and and Meghan house. I just thought, oh, you know, Oprah just does things differently. Usually you wouldn't be, give me a big hug and, oh, the baby and what's the baby going to be? And I guess the news that kind of got overshadowed is the second child is going to be a girl. Okay. So then Oprah put out this lengthy disclaimer. I just want to say that you don't know what I'm going to ask. Uh, This is completely unscripted. Nothing is off limits. And by the way, you're not getting paid for this interview. Now, CBS paid $7 million or as much as $7 million for the rights to show this in partnership with Oprah Winfrey. Um, but that's okay because they'll make a lot of money on it, selling advertising and all of that. Uh, but it is important to know that this was not some kind of payoff uh, to this royal couple. I got to say, as somebody who's always kind of like Meghan Markle and thought she was getting a raw deal, in the first 15 minutes or so, uh, I she kind of lost me. I didn't think she did well at all. Uh, and they talked about you know how wonderful it was and on the world's attention when you got married and it was so exciting and here you are this American actress marrying a prince and going into part of the royal family, and she just came off as kind of clueless, entitled, and naive. Well, I didn't really know what the job was and I didn't really understand that you know there would be all of these duties and restrictions on me as a member of the royal family. And, I, you know, Harry and I didn't really talk about Well, if they didn't talk about it, 
you know, uh, then that was a big mistake on Prince Harry's part. And if she didn't ask a whole lot of questions, she's not exactly doing what, what lawyers call due diligence. I mean, of course, when you become a member of this, you know, family that has the monarchy that has ruled, air quotes there, you know, Britain for centuries, given the long history there, of course, you must have some sense, she's obviously a smart woman, of what you're getting into. So it just sounded disingenuous to me. I was so surprised, you know. I, I couldn't, they wouldn't let me talk. The comms team uh, told me I couldn't go to lunch with my girlfriends because I would have been overexposed and I was too far out there. Well, you know, you got to manage your image. That's part of what you're buying into. And if you weren't comfortable doing that, maybe this was not the guy for you to marry. Now, um, I later became, there was a point in the interview where I became a little bit more sick, sympathetic to Meghan Markle as she talked about what's actually like day to day to be trapped uh, in the palace, to be, to no longer sort of be able to live your life the way you think it should be. And here I thought, um, you know, Oprah's very, she's a very skilled interviewer. So even though she seems to be your pal and your friend. And she kept, Oprah kept trying to say, well, so what was it? Tell me about the first time you met the queen. Oh, the queen was so lovely, but I had to learn how to curtsy very deeply. And so it's just like meeting uh, any, any new bride or somebody who's engaged, meeting a grandmother. Yeah, except she's Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> so there was a lot of sort of trying to relate it to ordinary people as if this was an ordinary marriage, an ordinary family, and the firm, as apparently it's called, was an ordinary you know, company not a company, but it is, you know, part of the institutions of Britain. But then, as we got more into it, and some of the things that Megan said, uh, I started to feel a lot more sympathy for her. And I got to say, though, just doing this two-hour interview with Oprah Winfrey, I mean, it does seem like, you know, they deliberately set off uh, to sort of rupture what remains of their relationship with their royal relatives. I mean, you know, she didn't pull any punches. Uh, so first there was the story about, I mean, Oprah went on and on about this. I'm thinking, geez, can you just move on? You know, the British tabloids six months uh, after the marriage were awash in stories that Meghan Markle, this newcomer from the States, had made Kate Middleton cry. And so, of course, she's going to deny that. And it, she said, yeah, there was a spat about what kind of... Uh, this actually happened like the week of the wedding, even though it came out, leaks to the press six months later, what kind of flower, what kind of dresses the flower girls would wear. And then Megan says, no, it was the opposite. Kate made me cry. Now, I, I think highly of Kate and she apologized and she's such a wonderful woman. I wouldn't even bring this up except for the fact that I got a dump on her to avoid getting dumped on. Again, I thought that was, you know, more incendiary and like, who cares? Uh, some spat about the dresses, but here we are. But then you get to the really disturbing things that Meghan Markle had to say. And that's when the interview took a turn, when they talked about how when she was pregnant uh, with what you know became her first son and the royal couple's first son, that there was a lot of talk about, well, would they have security? Because obviously they're, you know, very, very high profile and they need security. 
would the baby have a title, which seems to be automatic when a new boy or girl is born into the British monarchy, they become, you know, the future prince or duke or something like that. And it wasn't really clear. And then came the killer line, the thing that, you know, is just making headlines around the world. In the months when I was pregnant, we had in tandem the conversation that he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, I'm quoting her now, and also concerns and conversation about how dark his skin might be when he's born. And Oprah sat there for a full five seconds, and then she said, What? And it was stunning. I mean, you know, Meghan Markle as a black parent and a white parent. And so that was part, you know, the thinking is that's been part of the animosity toward her in British society, in the British press in particular, that she, you know, is marrying into this white family and she is of mixed race. So that was a bombshell. And then, and this is the point where I found it impossible not to feel sympathy for her, even if she's entitled, even if she's wealthy, even if she's unrealistic in thinking that she was going to be able to do whatever the hell she wanted. She said that as this was going on and she was trying to adjust to royal life, she had a clear and real and frightening thought about suicide. And Harry, who joined the interview later, uh, told Oprah that... Um, his wife did not receive any support from the royal family over her mental health. It was not a conversation to be had. So, of course, the big headline coming out is, is Meghan Markle was suicidal or had thoughts of suicide. And given what happened with Harry's mother and that he believes to this day that the press killed Diana. Remember, there was the car chase with the paparazzi in that tunnel. And it was just one of the great tragedies. He got scared of what might happen to his wife. He got worried for her safety, and that, I think, more than anything else, is what led to this royal breakup, the famous Megxit. Okay, so how is this playing overseas? Daily Mail, there's a nice roundup here in The Hollywood Reporter, devoted over 20 stories to this this morning, even though this hasn't aired in Britain yet. It's airing tonight. But obviously, you know, there are ways of accessing, I guess. Over 20 stories. Daily Mail raced to post photo galleries, analyses, news articles, reaction. The front page in the paper said, Megan accuses Palace of racism. Now, Piers Morgan, you remember him from his um, days as a CNN host. He's now the co-host of the British breakfast show, Good Morning Britain. He's been a very public critic of Meghan Markle, so he just went completely and totally bonkers on her, saying that Prince Harry had spray-gunned his family with this revelatory interview. It was so disloyal. He's been spray-gunning the family on global TV as Prince Philip lies in the hospital. His dad is 95 years old, and he is in the hospital. There had been some talk maybe this would be delayed. I see right through them, uh, said Piers. Prince Charles has been bankrolling that couple for the last five years. And, uh, Morgan said, America is trashing our country and trashing our monarchy now. Okay, well, it, you know, uh, Oprah is a journalist who asked a bunch of questions. It's your royal couple that chose to answer them. They didn't have to do this. They could have just lived the L.A. life and have their big deal with Spotify and so forth. So don't blame it on the Americans in London's sun. Columnist named Matt Wilkinson said Meghan Markle might never return to Britain after angering royal family with bombshell Oprah interview. Uh, he said they could have burnt their bridges by failing to tell family members what was in the two-hour chat. 
before it was shown. And then you have the Telegraph, a bit more upmarket, comparing Meghan Markle's self-imposed exile unfavorably to that of Wallace Simpson, the wife of Edward VIII, who then ended up abdicating many, many decades ago. And they were like Nazi sympathizers. All right, enough on that. I'm sure this will reverberate forever, basically. So let's deal with something a little more substantive for our uh, U.S. listeners. And that is the big coronavirus bill that is on the verge of passing Congress. So this is $1.9 trillion. This is the Voterama, 24 hours of Senate debate, actually passed on Saturday. And here's the thing. This is going to be the first and the overwhelming legislative victory for President Biden. You can't take that away from him. At the same time, you have to quickly add that in the House and now in the Senate, zero Republican votes. And what happened here is, you know, uh, you know, we recall early on Biden met with those 10 Republican senators, the more moderate senators, Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and others. And they came in with a possible counterproposal, less than one-third of Biden's nearly $2 trillion bill. Well, he's not going to go for that. And also, there was a great fear on the part of the Biden team, and, and they felt that this had happened at the beginning of the Obama administration with the big stimulus bill then, when Biden was VP, after the big Wall Street collapse, uh, that they would talk and talk and talk and talk, and in the end, they'd get nothing. And they felt like, you know, the economy is very fragile. They had to move quickly. Uh, these jobless benefits for many, for, you know, about 10 million Americans running out in the middle of March. And if the Republicans weren't going to kind of meet them uh, closer to halfway, then they would have to go it alone. So they're using this reconciliation party line vote. And by the way, the Republicans did this on the Trump tax cuts. It's a pretty common feature when you can't get bipartisan support. And so... My feeling on that is, yeah, it would have been a hell of a lot better if you could have gotten, you know, 10 Republican votes in each chamber. Nevertheless, you know, six months from now, the people who are getting these $1,400 stimulus checks, people who are getting these tax credits, the small businesses that are going to get this aid, particularly places like restaurants that are just hanging by a thread, um, the unemployment benefits, and there was some compromise on that. I'll get to that in a second. They're not going to remember what kind of parliamentary procedures were followed. They're going to be happy, particularly if the economy approves. And the other part of this is there's a lot of money in this for the vaccination program, because now Biden says by the end of May there'll be enough vaccines, but you need to get them into the arms of enough Americans so that the virus, which is not going to vanish, but will be vanquished uh, by better state, local, and county programs, which, as I've said many times, are an absolute friggin' mess. Okay, so um, you have Republicans are going after this bill. Mitch McConnell and others, way too big, doesn't need to be this too big. It's going to overheat the economy, and we'll see. Maybe it will. There are even some uh, liberal economists, uh, people like Larry Summers, who have been speaking out, saying it doesn't have to be this big. But Biden felt like better to go too big than too small, and we'll see how that gamble pays off. So now we have the compromises that basically were single-handedly negotiated by Joe Manchin. Uh, Joe Manchin was on uh, four Sunday shows yesterday. Joe Manchin is now one of the most powerful people in Washington. He's a rather conservative Democratic senator from West Virginia, and he is willing to use that leverage to get what he wants. And I like Joe Manchin. I don't think he's you know has this huge ego, not as full of himself as many of his fellow senators, but he feels like, as one of the so-called moderates, um, that he has to, you know, make 
negotiate changes to what Biden wants to do so that the other moderate senators, you know, people like John Tester and others, don't get wiped out either in 22 or 24. So basically, because with a 50-50 Senate, any one senator can blow the thing up. Uh, any one Republican senator can come over to the Democratic side and change the landscape. And any one, any one of those 50 Democratic senators can say, you know what, I don't like this, and until you let you change this, I'm not voting for it. And then Kamala Harris can't break the tie. So Manchin thought the unemployment benefits were too generous. And they worked out a compromise where instead of it being $400 a week, it would go to $300 a week. Now, in the scheme of a nearly $2 trillion bill, that's not that much. If you're a family who's out of work and you suddenly it's a 25% cut, because of this theory that people won't look for jobs, I've never bought that particularly. You know, a lot of people lost jobs through no fault of their own. They weren't lazy. Their jobs blew up. Their companies had to lay off. It's because of the pandemic, by and large, not always. And um, the, the special jobless benefits were going to run through early October, but it's, they're going to end earlier. They're going to end at the beginning of September. So Manchin got his way, and Biden said, look, that's a reasonable compromise. It didn't really cut into the heart of what I want this bill to do. Uh, and, but this does sort of set a template for, you know, you know Biden wants to do um, an infrastructure bill. Biden wants to do uh, an immigration bill. Good luck with that, is my view. Uh, Biden wants to um, make some changes to the health care system. And th- this bill does do that. No public option that was put to the side. That's a real liberal wish list thing. Um, But there are ways in which, you know, it helps out the existing Obamacare program. And by the way, you know, Biden and the Democrats have taken a lot of heat from their progressive wing for letting go of the $15 minimum wage. Let me just tell you a couple things here. First of all, it's not a $15 minimum wage. It goes to like 11. And the $7.25 minimum wage right now, it's been stuck at that number for a decade. Because unlike other federal benefits, it's not indexed to inflation. So just by using inflation, it should go to 11. But it's not supposed to, wouldn't supposed to reach uh, to, uh, for several years the $15 uh, an hour. Now you say, well, why did they roll over for the Senate parliamentarian? Just, just have Harris overrule her and get a new parliamentarian? Well, first of all, it's not that easy to do. And here's why. Manchin is the only one, and not the only one, who doesn't um, want the $15 minimum wage. Uh, Kristen Sinema, freshman Democrat from Arizona, doesn't want the minimum wage. And there are other seven Democrats voted against raising the minimum wage to 15 on a graduated scale. So you couldn't have passed it even if you got rid of the parliamentarian. Also, there's pressure on the Democrats to get rid of the filibuster. Of course, if they lose control in 2022, it comes back to bite them. But the idea is Republicans are going to oppose everything. And with no filibuster, you can ram everything through with 50 or 51 votes with Harris voting. And otherwise, all this stuff's going to be stymied. But Manchin is a huge... There's nothing in the Constitution, by the way, about filibuster. In times, it's incredibly frustrating. Manchin told Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday he wants to make it harder, more painful, he said, to use the filibuster, but he doesn't want to get rid of it. That means it's not going anywhere. More painful, what does that mean? It means you've got to stand on the Senate floor for 20 hours reading green eggs and ham, as opposed to just getting an agreement that we won't do that, but it will be as if we had invoked the filibuster and you need 60 votes to move anything. Look, in this polarized Senate, the Democrats are not going to get 60 votes on a lot of stuff. So this is a really crucial point. But nevertheless, um, 
Here's where conservative critics have a point. There is a lot of stuff in this Christmas tree bill that basically is liberal wish list. And the New York Times has some good examples. Number one, remember, this is all supposed to be to fight the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic on the economy. Well, turns out there's $86 billion in here that's basically a taxpayer bailout for about 185 union pension plans that are close to collapsing. So that more than a million retired truck drivers, clerks, builders, and others would be f- not get their retirement income. Well, first of all, I feel great sympathy for anybody who worked for a living, had a good career, was promised a pension, and isn't going to get that. But that should be a separate issue. Because, look, this is a payoff by the Democrats to their union supporters. That's what it is. Again, if it's such a great idea, vote on it separately. Well, it's hard to get the votes for it separately, so you roll it into this much bigger bill. Beyond that, there's the child benefit. So about $100 billion is going to be spent on tax credits, up to $300 a child, for families with kids. Now, one argument is, well, why families with kids, not families without kids? Another argument is, well, it's only for a year, so this will help people with larger families uh, pay the bills, put food on the table and all of that. But the Democrats are going to want to make this permanent. In effect, what they want to do is they want to make great strides against ending childhood poverty. And look, I would like to get rid of childhood poverty, but we're printing the money at this point, folks. We don't have the $2 trillion, or the government's going deeper into debt, so there should be a debate on this. But this is the kind of thing, when you've got the big omnibus bill, you can get it through, and you know who's going to pay the price? At this point, we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. The only parties that care about deficits and debt are the parties that are out of power. So the Democrats cared about it when Trump was the president. Now the Republicans say they care about it. They didn't before. They do now. Um, again, some of these are worthy causes. Higher minimum wage, you may agree with. Uh, better tax credits for families with kids, you may agree with. But there was one train leaving the station, and that's why all this stuff is on. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let me get to that third story. Yesterday, both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post had new, long, deep-dive stories about other allegations against Andrew Cuomo. And his and he had to put out a statement yesterday, do a conference call with reporters. His political position is weakening by the hour. And the way I know that is the Democratic leader in the New York State Senate has now come out and said he should resign. Uh, the Assembly Speaker has stopped short of that, but says, well, he may want to think about how, whether he can continue. But this Senate Majority Leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, she became the first senior Democrat in the state to say that Andrew Cuomo, after 10 years as governor, should resign. Uh, here's um, some quotes from her. Every day there's another account that is drawing away from the business of government. New York is still in the midst of this pandemic and is still facing the societal, health, and economic impacts of it. We need to govern without daily distraction. For the good of the state, Governor Cuomo must resign. Cuomo's response with reporters, there's no way I resign. Uh, he also said it would be anti-democratic for him to step down because he was elected for a four-year term. More from Cuomo. They don't override the people's will. They don't get to override elections. I was elected by the people of New York State. I wasn't elected by politicians. So what's some of the new stuff that's come out? And by the way, there were also stories in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, I believe Friday, about more evidence of a cover-up of nursing home deaths, you know, on my show, the point was made, many conservatives are saying, the real scandal in New York is the nursing home deaths and the efforts to cover it up, and Cuomo's bad policies there, but, you know, because it is a, quote, sexier story to talk about the women who are accusing him, 
that's getting more ink and airtime. Nevertheless, he's being really badly weakened here. So in um, the Wall Street Journal story, a former aide named Anna Liss uh, said that she'd worked as a policy aide to the governor between 2013 and 2015. Cuomo called her sweetheart, kissed her hand, and asked personal questions, including whether she had a boyfriend. Uh, he was asked about this yesterday. Cuomo said that kind of talk was my way of doing friendly banter. So my problem is, you know, he, should he have done that? No. But it's in a different category uh, than Charlotte Bennett, who goes on with Nora O'Donnell on CBS and says the governor was trying to sleep with me. He asked if I would have sex with older men. He said he'd do anyone who was uh, over 22. That's classic sexual harassment, and the governor hasn't really disputed that. Now, in the Washington Post story, which, by the way, interviewed a lot of men also and talked about what a toxic culture it is working for Governor Cuomo. Uh, Men were quoted as saying um, that the way they got yelled at over mistakes, and women, too, were quoted as saying it was just like like people would cry and people would ask, are you all right? So a lot of this was about the toxic nature of the Cuomo administration in the opinion of the people who are now going public. But the woman who got the most attention in the Washington Post story is a woman named Karen Hinton. She said, you know, she liked the governor for a long time, but they had an uncomfortable hotel room interaction when the two of them met in California. This is years ago. They were trying to patch things up. They had been kind of estranged. By the way, Karen Hinton went on to work for Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, who was sort of Cuomo's mortal enemy, even though they're both Democrats. So Cuomo, you know, who is, in, in, in most of these cases, Cuomo has been saying, well, you know, I, I realize now I made people uncomfortable. I'm really sorry. I'm embarrassed and all of that. In this case, he said, uh-uh-uh, this didn't happen. This, um, he's really knocking down what Karen Hinton is saying. So what she says is, in this hotel room years ago, uh, as she got up to leave, Cuomo gave her a hug that was, quote, very long, too tight, too long, too intimate. She described the encounter not as sexual harassment, but as a power play for manipulation and control. At the time, she was no longer working for Cuomo. So it's interesting. She says she didn't think a lot of this was about sex. It was really about power and manipulation, which, you know, can be certainly be part of sexual harassment. Uh, Cuomo said this was not true. He noted they'd been longtime political adversaries. So one of Cuomo's aides, uh, Peter Ajimian, he's director of communications, said this of Karen Hinton's account about the hotel room encounter to the Washington Post. This did not happen. Karen Hinton is a known antagonist of the governor's who is attempting to take advantage of this moment to score cheap points with made-up allegations from 21 years ago. All women have the right to come forward and tell their story. However, it's also the responsibility of the press to consider self-motivation. This is reckless. Hinton's response to that, attacking the accuser is the classic playbook of powerful men trying to protect themselves. She said she's speaking out now because she was watching the news conference where Cuomo was saying, you know, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed, but it's not really my fault. She said that drove me crazy, that he was regularly flirtatious with women. I really thought the flirt wasn't about having sex. It was about controlling the relationship. And a woman uh, who worked in uh, Cuomo's Albany office was quoted as saying, what this is, is a systemic, intentional, hostile, toxic workplace environment that perpetuates abusive treatment of people who don't have power or resources. And some of this goes back uh, 20 years when Andrew Cuomo was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development for Bill Clinton. 
uh, a woman who worked there, because the Post had, you know, obviously was able to reach a lot of people who still work here in Washington, quote, um, a HUD political appointee from that time. You didn't know which Andrew you were going to get. She recalled an incident of Cuomo yelling at her in her office so loudly her colleagues came to check on her well-being. She said, I remember it was pretty vicious and over the top, like if I had killed somebody. Not even my own parents ever yelled at me the way he yelled at me. So obviously, Andrew Cuomo in deep, deep political peril now, losing support among Democratic leaders, including the Senate Democratic leader um, in Albany. And look, he is a determined guy. He is not going to walk out of there. Uh, he, he can make the due process case that he's entitled to have this investigation by the state AG go forward. And I think he has a point there. Uh, obviously, what he hopes is this takes a while and tempers calm down and we're done with more people coming forward. But for a story that the media, much of the media initially did not want to cover, I have to say Governor Cuomo is clearly, clearly in a lot of trouble. And finally, uh, David Brooks, New York Times columnist, a guy I know, a guy who I think is, a, is in many ways a, a very creative writer. He's also, you know, I've mentioned this before on the Friday podcast, he's anti-Trump. He's a moderate conservative who hates Donald Trump. Well, he got into some trouble uh, based on reporting from BuzzFeed News. Uh, he had another job, seems to have been a full-time job, at the Aspen Institute, uh, where he was the head of some project. And the thing about it is, um, the New York Times has now finally taken action because David Brooks wrote favorably about this project at the Aspen Institute. It was also partially funded by Facebook, and he also wrote favorably about Facebook, without disclosing to his readers, to the readers of the New York Times, that he was making money from these ventures. You know, he acknowledged his involvement, but not that it was a paid position. He apparently told the old editors on the opinion page, but not the current editors. The current editors weren't aware he was receiving a salary for this project, which is called Weave. So here's a statement from the top uh, PR person at the New York Times. The current opinion editors were unaware of this arrangement and have concluded that holding a paid position at Weave presents a conflict of interest for David in writing about the work of the project, its donors, or the broader issues, broader issues it focuses on. So David Brooks has now resigned, she says, uh, from the project. He can, he'll work there as a volunteer, but he's resigned as a paid staffer or director. And the New York Times is going back to all previous columns about this and adding disclosures, which shows you it was a conflict of interest and should have been disclosed at the time. Uh, and it's just a mistake. It's just an absolute mistake. If you're making money, you, you, know, the, you know, financial reporters got to disclose if they have stock when they're writing about the company, and David Brooks was no different. Uh, he said on the PBS NewsHour, where he's also a contributor, that he doesn't feel this affected his journalism at all, but at the very least, the appearance was awful. The New York Times now recognizes that. He's had to give up the paid job, and as I said, disclosures have been belatedly added to those past columns. Well, that, there's a lot I didn't even get to here, folks, but these stories I just feel like sometimes, you know, use the time on the podcast for a much deeper examination than you can do in segments on TV that go by very quickly, even a column, you know, you can only write so much before people's eyes glaze over. Thank you for listening. Again, hope you had a good weekend. Check out Media Buzz. Subscribe here on Apple iTunes or many other places, and we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.